We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 141. Our guest today is a prime example of an equestrian who was heavily involved in the industry, but she saw a need and filled it with her brand, Ruspari Belts. So here to talk a little bit about her brand, how she got to where she is today, and the amazing waves she is making for the equestrian community, please welcome Adrian Marciano. Before we get into your amazing belts, I want to hear about how you first got into the horse world. So it's kind of a funny story. My mom growing up had a pony and she didn't do horse shows or anything, but she just had a pony and it lived in her backyard. So she would tell me stories about the pony and all the fun things that she did with the pony with her brothers. And for my seventh birthday, it was either my seventh birthday or my eighth birthday. One of my birthdays, I had been really nagging her about taking a riding lesson. I really wanted a riding lesson. And at the time, we could only find Western riding lessons. And she really wanted me to ride English. So I went for my birthday with my best friend at the time. And I had my first riding lesson on a pony. It's kind of funny, ironic that its name was J. Crew. And I hopped on J. Crew. And after that, I have been riding ever since it started, you know, once a week riding lessons. It turned into every single day, turned into getting horses. And I've been riding ever since. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I love it. When you were kind of just getting into riding versus, you know, when you got your first horse, at what point were you kind of like maybe? adjusting your show schedule, riding more, showing more, making it more of your life? Was there kind of a a specific moment or did it kind of gradually transition into more and more of your life? It definitely gradually transitioned. As a kid, you know, I first started taking riding lessons and then I got one, you know, one horse and then I got another horse and I ended up training with Phoebe DeMont and the Hunters and I did the junior hunters. And then I ended up going to try a horse at Kevin Babington's and he gave me this mini lesson and I had been migrating to the jumpers. So then I migrated to the jumpers and I became, I would say I was really serious about it with Phoebe and then very serious when I started riding with Kevin. Amazing. Um, we had Diana Babington on the podcast a little while ago, and I mean, their whole story is incredible. What, what are some things that you have learned from Kevin that you use in your riding and, and your life now? Wow. I just got the chills because I've learned pretty much everything from, yeah. from Kevin. They are like my second family and sorry, I'm getting a little choked up. So I learned everything about how to be a horsewoman all the way up to Kevin is amazing on the ground. It our lessons as a kid. I'm so privileged that I started training him with, with him when I was 16. He really teaches you the fundamentals of riding. Hmm. Flat work is everything. Straightness, balance, 
all of those things. And, you know, I was 16 years old and with his Irish accent at the time, <laughs> I could barely, I'm like, wait, he's telling me to move the shoulder here, move the, I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> but, you know, I would, you know, tilt the shoulder one way and he'd be like, that's good. Okay. And then, you know, so then over time he was incredibly patient, but I trained with him for so many years. And I still, if I need help with a horse, you know, I ask him, can you help me? And he, I was just actually visiting with him last week, but he really has taught me an incredible amount. And Diana is one of my dear friends. Wow. Yeah. She is an absolute amazing lady and her strength and yes. persistence, especially since his accident are just, it's just so incredible. It's been probably one of my favorite interviews on the podcast. Yes. So I love that you have worked with him. That's so cool. Yeah. That, that was an amazing time. And, you know, to be able to still get his help, I'm incredibly fortunate. Yeah. That's so cool. Moving forward from that point on, what did life kind of look like for you then? So while I was training with Kevin, I decided to go local to school in Philadelphia and I went to St. Joe's and I was the only freshman on campus to have a car because I would go home pretty much. It was supposed to be just the weekends to go and ride my horses and show, but I ended up going home every single day because (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the barn was 45 minutes away and I just couldn't, I couldn't stay away from my horses and you know, training with Kevin. And it was really just, it has always been important to me to show and compete. So yeah. What were some highlights that kind of stick out in your mind as a rider in your junior and early amateur days? When I was a junior, I, I actually had the opportunity. I was riding a young green horse for the assistant trainer of Kevin at one point, and it was an equitation horse. And I trained in Vermont because of Kevin. As a junior, it wasn't like I had this like, you know, amazing career. I was champion in the I think the juniors on the one a horse coming to WEF, but it wasn't really until I got, I got a horse called Laspari and I, my highlights really came, came when he came along, you know, we won Devin and the high amateurs twice wow. and that's, you know, pretty incredible. He's an incredible animal. And I've had a lot of awesome horses. I've had you know, a famous hunter called Gray Street, but I didn't really ride that one. So I've had a lot of good horses throughout the years, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until I got Laspari that I really, you know, was able to rise to the occasion in doing the high amateurs and that sort of thing. So tell me a little bit about the story of finding Laspari. Like, do you remember what the trial was like or your first time on him? How did that kind of go? This is so funny. I actually did not sit on him. I, I saw a video and there is a guy that found him at the Neustadt stud. His name is Andre Tima. He actually just won the million dollar jumper class for the fourth time. And there were four, I believe three or four horses that came from Neustadt and Laspari was one of them. And I would say from the moment I sat on him, I knew he was going to be a special horse. Everyone around me did not think so. So I was being told from friends, my mom, the guy that I had been with at the time that this horse, he was nothing more than 
you know, at best a low amateur horse. I just believed in him from the start. And, you know, it really shows through our partnership. I think we believed in each other. And when I sat on him for the first time, you know, you know, when you get on a horse and you're just like, this horse was made for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. That's really pretty much how it went. Wow. And what kind of level was he at when you first got him? So he won his stallion approval, I know, as a five-year-old. And he, it was something called, and I butcher this every time, the Bundish Championnade. So as a five-year-old, they were saying that, oh, wow, this horse is incredible. And I didn't get him until he was an eight-year-old. And okay. he was a stallion at stud. And he had very little experience, actually, when he came to me. He was just a stallion standing at the German stud. And, you know, I think he had done some 120s, 130s, but not really any uh, much competition experience. Got it. So from the time of getting him to being successfully showing in the high amateurs, what, were, what, what did that process look like for you two? Well, I remember I started in the lows and it wasn't smooth sailing. He, he wasn't super careful in the beginning. I remember one time having three rails down in the low amateurs at WEF and my mom was like, "Hmm, I don't know about this horse. And that was my first year of riding him. It definitely you know, he would, his canner was so weak behind because we had gelded him so late at eight years old that he was sort of falling off the lead behind sometimes, you know, he was pretty weak. And when you geld them that late, Mm -hmm. you have to really take your time. So I just took my time with him and I ended up, you know, jumping him in some very big classes. I remember I did the first $250,000 class I qualified for at hits and they build it like atrociously. Like it was huge. It was like a meter 50 the second day. I'm like, yeah, this is where I draw the line. Intimidating course walk. (laughs) Yeah. I was scared. (laughs) So, and yeah, and for sure we had you know, the greatest thing about Lasbari is we had high points and we had low points, but I was always, you know, when you keep a horse for years, there's going to be good classes and bad classes. Sure. So, but certainly his winning really out that outshined everything. So amazing. That is yeah. so cool. And yeah. then let's talk a little bit about Rusbari, which obviously is a combination of two of your animals. Yes, it is. Tell me a little bit about like where you were at in your life when you kind of came up with the idea initially of starting Ruspari and where that kind of led you to where you are now. So I always knew from the time I was younger and applying to colleges that I wanted to somehow be involved in design. Mm -hmm. That's really my other passion. And I got a scholarship to Philadelphia University, but I thought it would be more important to go to business school at St. Joe's. So I Mm. chose that route. And then what ended up happening was I, you know, went to business school. I graduated. I worked for, I don't know if you know the High Line in New York City, but it was a famous landscape architect that designed that. I worked for him a little bit. I, I, 
had a lot of different jobs trying to get my feet wet, trying to figure out what I was going to do. At one point, I even lived in you know New York City, and then I came home. And I, what led me to the point of Ruspari, kind of an interesting story. I just was horse showing at Devon, and I wanted. I thought that there were no really, I love accessories. I love, I'm like you, I love Same. hats. Yeah. Like I know you do. Like I see you wearing these beautiful hats. Like I love hats. I love belts. I love any kind of accessory. And I was going to Devon my first time with Laspari. And I thought to myself, I really want some cute new belts. And I went into a local tax shop. I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And there, they were these thick, chunky leather belts. And there were no riding belts that were elastic anywhere. That mm-hmm. just wasn't a thing. So I ended up sourcing the fabric that were, made the very first Roosbari belts. And I sourced a buckle that was just super flat. Yeah. So I started with five styles only because when I wore them at Devon and my mom's friend sewed them for me, I was stopped by all of my friends, (laughs) even in like the cheese sandwich line. They said, where did you get that belt? I said, Oh, I made it. So I thought, wait a second, this Uh is a thing because, you know, I'm sitting years before I'm sitting in class at St. Joe's and they're saying, you know, marketing solves a problem. Like if you have a product that solves a problem, then you're going to win. Right. So that is the, you know, fundamental of marketing. And I was a marketing major and I just thought to myself, this really solves a problem. This flexible belt is super comfortable. I have a flat clasp. So when you put on your riding jacket, you don't have bulk and they're super cute. So it, I really kind of fell into it. It was just such a marketable thing at the time with nobody else doing it, that it just, it was easy because it was a good product. So cool. And that was how many years ago? So I started, I want to say the company in 2016. Okay. So you get home from Devon. What, what were the next steps after that? So as I was showing at Devon and all my friends were there, they all were asking me, okay, can you have your mom's friend make me a belt? Can you, I'm like, I don't know if she's going to make all these belts. So I talked to her. She's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So a local, my cousin kind of hooked me up with a local person to do the design work. And she still heads as of today, she still heads the, the production and it, the production is still on the Philadelphia main line. So, you know, I've been working with her ever since. And, you know, there's a team of people that sew the belts and, you know, our product is made in the USA and, you know, it's all women. So it's, it's pretty cool. Switching gears a bit because I have a question for you listening. How much time and money do you spend on your horse's training and maintenance versus the time and money spent on your personal training and maintenance to enhance your ability as a rider? This is where Athlete EQ comes in. 
Athlete EQ is a complete fitness and health concept specialized for equestrian athletes. Training to strengthen the abilities as a rider needs to be specific and efficient. It needs to be long-term and it needs to be adjusted over time as we develop in the sport together with our horses. The health and fitness of the rider should be considered just as often as the health and fitness of the horse because it's a true team sport and it really helps to have the health and fitness of both horse and rider in check. My girl Nina from Athlete EQ has a deep understanding of the equestrian sport. She is actually also an equine nutritionist and works with some of the world's leading sport veterinarians. She also works with some top riders on their fitness and nutrition, like Jessica Springsteen, Emily Moffat, and Adrian Sternlicht. She also works with some top riders specifically on their equine nutrition, like Michael and John Whitaker's horses and Nelson and Rodrigo Pessoa's horses. I'm telling you, this is an incredible program, and I am so excited for Nina to come on the podcast very soon, so be on the lookout for her episode. But for now, take a look at her website at athleteq.eu. That's A-T-H-L-E-T-E-Q.E-U for more information. Thank you so much, Athlete EQ. All right, let's go back to the episode. So you went from offering your belts, uh, you know, in a, in a smaller way to now you are, you know, arguably the top equestrian belt company and tell, tell everyone your most recent news. Cause it is like legendary. It's so exciting. Yeah. So the first week, few weeks that I sold Roosbari, I was actually selling belts out of a Lululemon bag, um, at the <laughs> Devon horse show. So now we just partnered with Nordstrom's and our belts, four of them are sold exclusively on Nordstrom.com. So we're very excited about that. So incredible. I mean, that is such a great story from like in your, in a Lululemon bag, <laughs> yeah, know, like going around the show, yes. you know, you're, you had your mom's friend making a few <laughs> for you just so that you could have them for yourself to being at Nordstrom.com. Like it's so, so exciting. What does this next year kind of look like for you and Rusbari? Well, first of all, I have to say it's incredibly surreal because <laughs> I, this is a long-term plan that I've built my business around in the business model. And I thought it was going to happen a long time down the line, Right, but I you know, it's really exciting. The buyer for Nordstrom, they were just really excited because we're a cruelty-free brand. It's an excellent product. And, you know, they were very excited to have us. And yeah, so the next year we're doing a lot of designing, of course. We, you probably know this, but we always try to come out with new designs, new products. So that's what this year is going to bring some new products, some new designs are in the works. And we're working with Nordstrom for the next next collection because yeah, they're really excited we're on board. So that's kind of cool. And uh, yeah, you'll just have to see. Yeah. Something that I love about Rusfari belts, like owning a few myself is that not only like, I love that the clasp is always so flat, like what you were saying, it's not super bulky, especially I hate when you have like your show jacket on and you can see that belt lump all the way around. But the other thing I love is that 
I think when people hear the term elastic, they think it's like super stretchy, which it is, but it also is like very durable elastic. Like it's not like over time, it's going to get really flimsy or not hold up your pants. Cause that's also another thing is it, it, Elastic is great, but it also needs to be able to substantially do its job as a belt. You're absolutely right. So, yes. So, kind of like the softer elastic materials, they're not going to work for a belt because they really are not going to hold your pants up. So, we have a specific sort of fabric content that we go to for that reason. And they're a little bit while they're stretchy, they're going to do the job and they're not going to give you the belt gap in the back. And we really are all about design and where like in the middle, you'll see there's of our custom buckle with the logo, the logo piece covers the button on your britches. So everything that we do is for a reason. And it was, you know, made for a reason. It's a very like slim belt because you don't want any bulk around your midline as a rider. But I will say, you know, we obviously made these for riders. I'm a rider. Mm -hmm. It solves a need. But now we're really focusing on like every really like Ralph Lauren, for instance, I'm not comparing us to Ralph Lauren, but people really like to emulate equestrian style. Right. So, you know, now our really amazing photographer, Shauna, SAS photography. Love her. uh, Love, she's absolutely incredible. We just had a, sh- a shoot in Palm Beach and we, you know, we're putting these belts with swimwear. We're putting these belts with, you know, floral dresses mm-hmm. and they really complement not just riding britches, but, and they really, when you put it on, it really looks beautiful and on just about any article of clothing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's cool to see. She's done a really good job with styling our belts and we work together really well. So, you know, she's one of the reasons I tell her, I'm like, your photos are so amazing. When Nordstrom saw the lookbook, mm-hmm. they wanted our belts because of your photos. Totally. Yeah. That's a huge, oh. huge part yeah. um, of it. That kind of visual and, and just giving, I, I kind of get this also with my equestrian style is there's that component that sometimes people like they, there's, they see a product and it, they just get stumped on how to style this. And, and especially yeah. with equestrian apparel, I mean, it, a lot of it's a big investment. And so finding ways to wear it outside of the barn, I think are extremely important. So giving people those ideas, I think is a really good call. Absolutely. People need to know how to style the product. That is a hundred percent true because, you know, when you see our, when you see our belts just on a form or something like that, it doesn't really look like anything. It's not until you style them that you can really see that they, they are very cool, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. I love it. Well, a lot of exciting things going on right now. I will I will kind of end this because it is a question I ask everyone in the industry and I would love to hear your answer, but what would you say is an area of the equestrian community that you are super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? I am very much a horsewoman. As I said before with you know, training with Kevin, he really taught me a lot of, you know, to circle back to that. I, I think it's really important. I'm an amateur rider. 
I know that a lot of amateur riders, and I'm not faulting them for it. I know that they show up to the ring and they get on their horses. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to know everything about your horse and to spend time with them. And even if, you know, you have a full-time groom and to really care about them, know them and how they're feeling. I have really good relationships with my horses and I think they try harder for me. You know, I'm not a perfect rider. I make mistakes, but, but they like me and, and they know me and, and they want to try harder. And I, I think, you know, the culture of, and I don't want to say too much because again, I don't want to fault anyone. Some people don't have time to spend in the barn. I, I am fortunate enough. I do have the time, but I think, you know, if we could sort of instill these things into the young kids that are ponies, you know, that they can tack up their own horses and, and come to the barn and spend time with their ponies, not just show up for their 10 a.m. lesson. You know, I think, I think that would be the one area, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And I, I totally see where you're coming from because I get it. And there's definitely situations where, you know, people don't have a lot of extra time or, you know, they, they're, they're coming in to show like for a reason. And, and that's great. I, I agree with you that not any type of riding style or the way that people go about doing it should be faulted because everyone, you know, is allowed to go about doing it the way that they want. But finding those little ways, whether it's just taking an extra, you know, 10 minutes to graze your horse or to just hang out in the stall with your horse or doing those things to continue that bond is so important because like what you were saying, I mean, horses are so intuitive. I've noticed that even more so just recently with the passing of my dad, just, they know, they know when yes. you're, you're off or when, and, and I mean, it's a, it's a true partnership. So when you're coming in to show, chances are you're not always going to be on your A game. You're not always going to be, you know, ready to right. win or you might be tired or down or frustrated and being able to be partnered with an animal that truly gets you. And like what you were saying, putting in that extra mile for you because they really know you and there's that partnership there. That's I I think a really valid point. Yeah. I I think that is, I mean, that is just how I, what I believe. I really have the opportunity and I'm fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with them. And like I said, I might not ride perfectly, but I know that if I put them in a funny distance, they're going to try really hard to get out of it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, it's okay, mom. <laughs> yeah. My horses are good at that. They've seen that before. <laughs> that, I mean, that's a good quality to have in a horse for sure. But yeah, I feel like yeah. harvesting that through getting to know your horse, I mean, is only going to help your situation. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, with your dad passing, I mean, they are very intuitive and they know when you're sad or when you're nervous and, or if you're upset, all of those emotions, they really pick up on. So. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so excited for you (laughs) and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.